Shall we just pray as we stand? My Jesus, my Saviour, Lord, there is none like you. Father God, we praise you for that uh, great truth. And Lord, tonight we pray that we would uh, see more of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord God, that you would uh, take us out of this place, more determined to serve him and point to him than ever before. In his name we pray. Amen. Please do take a seat. I don't know about you, but in the uh, past three months or so before Christmas, I tragically uh, spent many hours on a Saturday night and also a Sunday night as well watching The X Factor. It's sad, I know, a symptom I'd like to think of uh, having young children and being unable to go out anymore, but there we go. There's no doubt that The X Factor is a really compulsive Viewing. So it's, a, it's a fascinating show to kind of get into. It's why 18 million people or so are sort of hooked on the soap opera um, that is the show. And what's very interesting is to listen to the reasons that people give for entering the show. It's a question, isn't it, that's often asked in one of those early audition shows by Simon Cowell or Cheryl or one of the other judges. When you appear on that initial audition show, the question is often asked, why have you come on the show? Or where do you see yourself in kind of five years' time, that sort of question? And the answers that people give are, are quite fascinating. You might sort of expect, well, I think I'm quite a good singer, I'd like a bit of a crack at the music industry, kind of send my voice out to the world. But more often than not, the contestant actually replies something like this. Because I want to be a star. I want to be a superstar. I want to be an international superstar. I want to be famous. I want people to recognise me. In some way, what are the contestants saying? They're saying, I want fame. I want glory. I want adulation. That is why I'm coming on this show. I want people to look at me and say, wow, aren't you great? I want to be somebody. It's a kind of symptom of our age, isn't it? It's the root of so much of the sort of instant celebrity culture we have, the reality TV shows, the OK and Hello magazines. People crave fame and recognition. And our culture these days seems to provide that kind of instant access to it, that instant path to being able to achieve that kind of recognition. Well, as we've already heard tonight, what we've got in tonight's passage is somebody who desires precisely the opposite of that. John the Baptist does not want to be famous. He doesn't want to be somebody in his own right. The last thing he wants is for the spotlight to be on him. I don't know whether you noticed, but John doesn't even mention his own name in this short interview. Why? Because all John the Baptist wants to do is to point to Jesus. John's whole life is about serving and pointing to Jesus Christ. And the question this passage poses for us tonight is this. How determined are we, how determined are we, that our lives should point and serve the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that a central determination of our life? It would be great if you could open up the passage. We're in John's Gospel, chapter 1, that's page 1063, uh, verse 19. 
What is really clear about John the Baptist in the pages of the New Testament, and this passage that we're looking at tonight, is that he is a giant of a man. He's an, an epic character, an immense and charismatic leader. Mark in his gospel gives us a little bit more detail than John does about John. If you go back and look at it, actually now, but if you want to check what I'm saying, Mark chapter 1, verse 5, tells us how great crowds came to be baptised. John had a hugely successful ministry. He was clearly the man of the moment. Thousands of people were coming out from Jerusalem, out from the surrounding countryside, to the River Jordan to be baptised by this strangely dressed man. You know, baptism is such a familiar concept to us that we can, we can sort of miss the significance of the baptism ministry that John the Baptist had. Jews just didn't get baptised at the time. Baptism was for Gentiles that crossed over from Judaism and who needed that complete cleansing. So by being baptised, people were rejecting, if you like, uh, the Jewish faith they'd been taught. They were identifying themselves with something completely new. John's preaching that everyone needed to be cleansed was causing a major stir. All the established religious orthodoxies of the day, they were all being challenged. Verse 6 of Mark chapter 1 tells us a bit about John's lifestyle and appearance. He wore clothing made of camel's hair, a leather belt. He ate locusts and wild honey, quite a familiar uh, set of words. It's not a lifestyle, is it, of the average Pharisee of the day? It is a self-denying lifestyle that authenticates the message that he preaches. John seems to be an authentic Elijah-type figure. And then later in Mark chapter 6, he even challenges the ruthless King Herod, not a man to be trifled with if you fancy a long life, about his adultery. He is not afraid of anybody. So it's clear that that huge numbers of people in Jordan knew the truth of John chapter 1 verse 6. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. John the Baptist was a burning light in his generation. And this really is the the backdrop of this interview that we've got in tonight's passage, what we're looking at now. The religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they would have been curious, angry, perhaps even threatened by John's ministry. John was turning Jewish teaching on its head and with massive success. Religious life is being stirred up. The proper order of things is under threat. What was going on? And so, as verse 19 tells us, an official delegation of religious leaders is sent out to see John in action on his own patch on the banks of the Jordan and to find out a little bit more about what is actually going on. If it was happening today, you can kind of imagine the scene, can't you? There'd be BBC News 24 there, Sky News, filming the whole extraordinary scene as it unfolds. There'd be the pictures of the people uh, streaming out from Jerusalem, all the crowds thronging uh, on the riverbank, baptisms going on. The journalists would be there getting, getting sound bites from the crowd, comments from the religious leaders about the concerns that they've got. Might have the fashion editor giving a bit of comment on the uh, strange outfit that he's wearing, the consumer correspondent commenting on the diet of John and his clothing. And then there would be the drama of this interview. This is, this is a headline news encounter. And how does John John the Baptist play the interview? He's cool as a cucumber, isn't he? 
firm but cool. John's fame and achievement lies behind every question that he's asked. And yet his answers would have been so disappointing to the religious leaders. These are answers that would have Jeremy Paxman adopting his most sneering and frustrated tone of questioning. That's the kind of setup we've got here. Just have a look at at verse 19. The priests and Levites ask him, here he is. His answer, verse 20, I am not the Christ. It's a brief and negative reply, isn't it? doesn't really give much helpful information in a positive sense. So they try again. Verse 21, they ask him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? This is a reference to to Malachi chapter 4, where Malachi prophesied that Elijah would come before the Messiah. John's answer, I am not. Three words. Not really riveting material, is it? Interestingly, Jesus later uh, calls John Elijah. But I think the thing to note here is that John is constantly denigrating himself and pushing someone else. So they ask a third question, verse 21. Are you the prophet? This is probably a reference to the prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy uh, who would return to lead Israel at some point in the future. What's the answer? No. It's getting worse, isn't it? A one-word answer. They're not really making much headway here. It's not a fantastic piece of film footage. So in verse 22, as, as the interview goes on, you can almost feel the frustration of the religious leaders. They, they know they're with someone special. It is remarkable news that so many Jews should acknowledge they're unclean and go out to seek baptism. It seems that a huge work of God is going on. So they're trying all the obvious questions, as you would. Are you the promised Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? No, no, no. So it's with some exasperation, they say in verse 22, well, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? You must have something to say. Tell us something useful. And then John replies, doesn't he, in verse 23. And he he uses the language of the prophet Isaiah to identify his role in Jesus' ministry. He says... I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. John says, I am a voice. Just a voice. I'm simply a speaking part for God. That is how he describes himself in his humility. Just a voice. Just making sure there's a proper road ready for the royalty that's coming. A voice to to level up the potholes and level down the bumps, telling people to make straight the way for the coming king. I'm simply a workman, says John, the road mender, to prepare the way for the Lord to come. What really matters, says John, is who is coming up behind. That's Christ himself. If you think about it, John's, John's baptism ministry makes complete sense in this context. Because the purpose of John's ministry is to expose people's sin and and make them see their need for Jesus. Because until people see their need for Jesus, they, they won't listen to him or won't welcome him or hear what he's got to say. So he prepares the way by preaching repentance 
and baptizing with water. John is saying to the Jews, God's own people, you too, you need to repent. You too need the saviour that's coming. Your religious heritage, your religious identity in itself is not enough. You need the king and saviour that is coming. John's whole ministry exists for the purpose of revealing Jesus Christ. And what do we learn of the Lord that is coming? Well, look at verse 26. John says, I baptise with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. You know, untying a a sandal thong was a chore that wasn't done by disciples for their teacher. Rather, it was a chore that was reserved for slaves alone. John is saying that right here is the saviour to come, and I'm not even worthy to be his slave. It's not about me, says John. It is all about him. So here is John, this great leader of authority, this preacher, prophet, a man with a mighty ministry, a guy who stirred at the times, yet he is determined, absolutely determined, the focus should be on another man. Don't you find that quite striking? How many other leaders uh, would do that? How many politicians, can you imagine, uh, would do that? They would say of another, he must become greater and I must become less. More of him and less of me. John John is determined to get out of the way for Jesus, to put the spotlight back on to Jesus. If you read on ahead, the extent of his willingness to do that is clear in verses 35 and 37 of this chapter, where there's an encounter uh, with Jesus and John's disciples. And John actually sends two of his disciples off to Jesus, off to be followers of Jesus. He loves his disciples enough to send them to Jesus. That is the extent of his humility and wisdom. We can't see Jesus, can we, in this interview? He doesn't appear in person, but his shadow is cast over the whole scene. His presence kind of burns through the words of this passage. The leaders ask, who are you? What do you have to say about yourself? And when John says, I am the voice, just a voice, our eyes are not on John. Immediately they turn away to another who is coming, the Lord Jesus himself. John is obsessed by Jesus. Probably a better title for John the Baptist would be John the Witness. That is how he's introduced, if you look at verse 7 of chapter 1. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. And this, this first century witness is, is a great model for us as we seek to be 21st century witnesses. By his actions, John is asking us, are you determined, are you determined to get out of the way for Christ? Are, are you pointing people to yourself or to Jesus? Do you, do you care enough about people? Do you love people enough to get out of the way? I guess like the, the average X Factor contestant, there's a tendency, isn't there, in our hearts to, to long to be somebody, to be known, to be successful, to be recognised, to be noticed, to be told that we're excellent, uh, 
at whatever it might be we want to be excellent at. In one way or another, that's a desire that can consume us, it can take over as the focus of our lives, the focus of our ambitions, what we want to achieve in the time that we've got on this planet. We want to be the centre of our own universe and for everyone to look at us and say, how great is he? How great is she? And that desire of self at the centre, that is the heart of sin. That is the essence of sin. I guess in many ways being a Christian can be a real danger here because if we're not careful, Christianity can become a way that we, we can be somebody or be something. We can revel in the role and identity that church life gives us. We love nothing more than someone to say, wasn't that a great set of prayers? Wasn't that a great sermon? Or people know that we're miraculously running the coffee hatch single-handedly. Or having our name appear on the latest you know, overhead projection uh, about the latest church project. We love to have our egos massaged by others. But what should our desire be? Our desire should be to submit our gifts so that God is glorified. So that God is glorified, not so we are glorified. God will only honour those who want to lift up Jesus. That is the truth. And if you think about it, our failure to, to point to Jesus is right at the forefront uh, of, of why so much of the church in this country is in such a state. I was really struck by that when I was thinking about it. You only have to read the press, even the Christian press, to realise that. We've got a habit of talking about everything, everything except Jesus. You know, our focus becomes music, or personal experiences, numbers, building projects, personalities, women priests, homosexuality, secondary theological issues. All these things always come to the fore. You know, these are all good things, potentially, if they point people to Jesus. But how often do they do that? Christianity is about people being saved from hell through Christ. Saved through the cross for heaven. And the reality is we are not going to be making a valuable contribution unless ultimately we are pointing people to Christ. It's the time, isn't it, for New Year resolutions, if you make them. I generally don't, because I can't keep them. Uh, But if we're Christians here tonight, then surely our resolution should be this. This year and every year, it must be to point people to Christ. He should be the focus, and, and everything else should get out of the way. It's not easy, is it? It's often difficult to get Jesus into that conversation, it's hard to, lead a, to strive to lead a life of purity that, that points people to Christ, that authenticates what we say. But that is what we're called to do. And because it's hard, we need to pray. We need to pray at the start of each day and say, Lord Jesus, help me not to point to myself today. Instead, help me to point to you. Help me to decrease so that you may increase. Help me to resist falling into that temptation that will point others away from you. It should be our prayer before we go to work, before we go onto campus, before we get into conversations, before we go to church, home group, before we come home at night to our families. Less of me and more of you. If you're anything like me, maybe at times we're a bit discouraged by 
by our efforts, somehow all our efforts, however rubbish they might seem to point people to Christ, just don't seem to bear fruit uh, in the way that we, we sort of hoped and prayed. We just don't seem to have that, that gift for evangelism that some other people seem to have. It feels like a lot of work and a lot of pain uh, for not much gain. Well, if that's a feeling, surely there's an encouragement in this passage. We need to remember that our task is to prepare the way for the Lord to come. To prepare the way for the Lord to come. You know, maybe in those conversations, we're just starting to help people overcome the roadblocks that are preventing them coming to Christ. Or, or putting in place those, those building blocks that will help people see and understand more of Jesus Christ. It's what one writer that I was reading about described as pre-evangelism. There's a real role for that. I was recently hugely encouraged, actually, by somebody that uh, I knew at university who was baptised a year or so ago. She was not a Christian at university, but she knew several people in the CU. Uh, She came to some mission events, occasionally came to the church that some of us went to. But in the end, I remember vividly, she just decided to reject it all and carried on exactly as before, having sort of teetered, seemingly teetered for a while. And it was very, very discouraging. And I completely lost contact with her after I left university. But I was talking to somebody recently who, um, by complete coincidence, happened to be at the baptism where she gave her testimony. And I was told what was said in that testimony. And it would be hugely encouraging to all the Christians that knew her some of the stuff she said about the witness that she'd seen at university would have been very encouraging because many who were witnessing felt, actually, this isn't great, and I've been pretty poor at what I've done. Our task is, is to do the groundwork so that Christ may come. We, we may not see the full fruits of our witness, but we should be encouraged that God is at work. He is at work and he will use us. Maybe you're here tonight and, and you're not a Christian. Perhaps you're a bit confused about Christianity because a Christian has got in the way. Or some, some previous church experience has, has not been great. And as a result, where's the limelight gone? It's gone away from Jesus and onto those other things. Somehow Christianity seems to be a religion rather than a relationship with Christ. But Christians seem to be good people rather than forgiven people. Can I urge you tonight, turn the spotlight back onto Jesus. Bring him into the focus. You know, running through John's Gospel is a, is a longing for people to have a face-to-face encounter with Jesus Christ. Can I urge you, don't let other people get in the way of that. Don't use uh, other things that you've seen as a barrier to that. Look at the pages of John's Gospel and see Jesus firsthand. Give Christ a chance and put Jesus in the spotlight. Shall we pray? Lord God, we do thank you for, uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, for the fact that you didn't uh, abandon uh, the world and leave us to our own devices but Lord, that you stepped into uh, to the mess of our lives, to the mess of this world, uh, to meet us uh, where we're at. And Lord God, we pray that we would be people that, 
uh, would long to live for you fully. Lord, that we would long with, with every sinew of our being to want to, uh, to point to the Lord Jesus, that he might be glorified. And Lord God, as we, we serve him more fully, we pray that we would, uh, we would see uh, encouragement in that. But the Lord, if we don't, we would know that you are at work uh, and we are doing uh, the calling that you've called us to. Please, would you just, just stir up in us tonight uh, a passion for the Lord Jesus Christ, to see his name glorified this week uh, and in the months ahead this year. In Jesus' name. Amen.